Good morning, everybody. That sounds really loud. I'll go ahead and whisper for the rest of my lecture. I am so glad to be here because um, this week's study, we got to dive into an entire chapter. And it's so fun to chunk it out and um, see exactly what is written in order from the mouth of our author, Paul. So I am excited to be doing that today. Um, broadly speaking, I want to remind you that um, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are about the who of Jesus. Acts is somewhere in between, but all the epistles are about the how. So these are action words on your um, outline this morning, and I want to remind you that if your speaker comes wearing pleather pants and a motorcycle jacket, you should be ready for action. I actually pulled these out this morning. I thought, if not now, when, you know? <laughs> so we are going to look at the action words, the how of those of us who call ourselves Christ followers, remembering that Paul was writing to enclaves or communities who had already decided to follow Jesus, but were in a, maybe in an atmosphere that was not always conducive to that. So the first thing we're going to do for ourselves is we're going to remind and then we are going to receive, and then we are going to um, rely, and then we are going to repel, and then we are going to recite. So get your, po your pipes working, because the last thing we're going to do together is recite. So anyway, we're, we're looking at the how-to. So um, let me just go into remind our first portion of Colossians 2, 1 through 5. So I'm going to go ahead and get in there, because it's better to read it right from the word, but there are a bunch of words in this, uh, in this book and from Paul, not only in Colossians, but elsewhere that talk about the mind, you know, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You know that one. That's the first one that comes to mind. But the word remind is actually a word that says mind again. You know it, but do it again. Remind again. I was just talking this morning about one of my favorite Bible studies, which is Experiencing God, which I think they're offering next semester. But that book requires that you practice, practice, practice what you've already known. You have to tell yourself so many times, and sometimes I would turn the workbook page and say, we just did this, and then they, I would look at it and go, yeah, but I don't remember. So it is important that we remind, and Paul is always talking about things. I want you to hear what he says. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for the, all of those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all of the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." Okay, I say this so that no one will delude you. You hear Paul talking about the word know and understanding and assurance and learning and teaching and wisdom and knowledge because he knows, like any good teacher, if we don't get it in our head, it's not going to come out with our hands, is it? But I would ask you, is it all about head knowledge? Was there a time in your life, or do you know folks for whom this is true right now, where you could tell a fair amount about God Maybe you had studied it in school, world religions. Maybe you had studied a denomination and wondered uh, ecclesiastical history. You knew the structures of the church, the methods of the church, the liturgy of the church, the rhythms of the church, but you didn't really know God himself. And so there is a difference between, of course, knowing about God and 
knowing God, and in, in reference to a book I just mentioned, experiencing God. So I would ask you, as you hear Paul's words, I'm going to listen to, I'm going to have you listen to them again. What else do you hear about him besides just an admonition for us to know? Listen again. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's hidden mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you. You hear more than words about knowledge, don't you? You hear a heart of knowledge. You've heard it said that people don't care what you know until they know that you care. Do you feel Paul caring in these words? I had the most um, five-star experience with an old student just a couple weeks ago. This brought this to mind for me. I met my um, student who is now a 50-something father of high school twins, Um, He was one of my first students as a 6th, 7th, and 8th grader, and his name is John. And when I saw him, he said, oh, gosh, do you remember this? And, of course, I didn't. (laughs) But he said, do you remember that time? And I was acting up in school. Well, he was a middle schooler, okay? He was acting up in school, and I wasn't taking things seriously. And you took me out in the hallway, and you put your hands on my elbows, and you looked in my eyes, and you said, John, what am I going to do with you? And you were crying. He said, that's when I decided to change it around, because I said, she really loves us. And that part I do remember. I did really love those first students, and I wanted for them what they should want for themselves. But people don't care what you know until they know what you care. And so Paul, who's very wordy, he cares. He cares about the people that he's met face-to-face and those that he's never met face-to-face. He cares about the people in cities we don't have letters for. He cares because the kingdom of heaven is everything. And so it really matters to him that we remind ourselves of what we know, but we also remind ourselves of the things of the mind and the things of the heart. Now, Paul leans heavily on words of the mind, and our author, Ruth Chow Simmons, said that those words can be interchangeable in ancient writing, mind and heart being the seat of a decision. Here's a couple of examples from Romans 8, 5 through 6. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace, certainly an emphasis on the mind. In Romans 10, 9, and through 10, just a few chapters later, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your what? That God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So here's what I would tell you. That the thing about that we are really being called to do is the work of the church, which Jesus said himself, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. And so to believe is that 12 inches between here and here. That connection between mind and heart 
equals believe. And I think that's what Paul is talking about, even when he defers to head words or when he defers to heart words. He's talking about the notion of believing, which is a commitment to say what I know in my head, I want to do with the rest of me. So the distance between heart and head can sometimes be a great distance, but if we have only head knowledge, we are in jeopardy of becoming puffed up and self-righteous. And if we have only heart knowledge, we are in jeopardy of being blown around by whatever emotional um, uh, teacher, leader, convincing uh, uh, so-called truth there might be out there. So it is definitely important that both the head and the heart be aligned. Would you agree with that? All right. I better move on here. So uh, we can deduce that Paul is asking us to believe. And um, I want to know if you have seen this in the news the last two weeks. Do you know this story about three fishermen in a capsized fishing boat off the coast of Louisiana? Skilled fishermen, long-term fishermen, boat capsized in a storm. They're floating around in the water for 24 hours. Held uh, held above the water surface by tiny little um, life preservers that we usually have for our kids. They're floating around in the water. They don't return back. Their families send call for the Coast Guard. And the Coast Guard has to survey 1,250 square miles to see if they can find these men bobbing with orange life preservers in the middle of the ocean fighting off sharks with their bare hands. Now, I would say there is no better example for me as we move to the next section, receive, than this example of men who have no power whatsoever to save themselves. They are helpless, they are exhausted, their resources are gone, there's nobody to cry out to. The only thing that they can depend on is that a helicopter with a lifeline, drops down from above and takes them to safety. Is that a picture of Jesus? Is that a picture of God's desire for us? Did those men climb up that rope? Did those men earn this pay-it-forward gift of being rescued from the ocean? Did they know enough to be rescued? Were they strong enough not to need a rescue? Helpless helpless and receiving rescue. And for those of us in this room who have understood that we are helpless to do all the hows until we know the whos, this makes the most sense because there is no other name by which you can be saved. Where would we go? There is no other name by which we can be saved. This is why it's easier for people with limited resources to come to Christ and why it's difficult for people with the kind of resources, skills, education, privileges that we might have here in this room to let go of everything and be that helpless and that dependent in all of our circumstances. You know, it's hard for a rich man to get to heaven as as it is for a camel to get through the eye of a needle. And that is because this helplessness is something we have to agree to. I used to say that I came to Christ. In fact, I'm not sure I didn't say that on the first time I was talking to you. I came to Christ in college, right? And I got to thinking about that. Who came to who? Who is the subject and who is the object? Christ came to me. 
Maybe I was like those early disciples walking down the road to Emmaus and I was thinking about him and wondering about him and wondering how this all fits together. Or maybe I was like somebody out on a fishing boat looking out at the vast expanse and the power of nature and thinking God is really glorious. But I didn't know Jesus until he interrupted my steps. I could only receive. I could not create his being with me. And so this is important for us to remember, especially as we get smarter, you know? It's all about receiving. He is always the subject, and we are always the object. So even when I say, I received, I have to understand, I received from is a passive voice. We're getting, we're getting the idea of who is the giver and who is the receiver. <clears throat> okay, so here it is from Colossians 2, 6, and 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord... So walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Can you imagine anybody more thankful than those men being rescued from sharks, shark-infested water after 24 hours? Maybe their families, but wow. That's what he's saying. As you receive Jesus, walk like you received it. You have received an amazing gift. Live in it. We don't live in it in order to receive it. We live in it because we received it. And this is why we are abounding in thanksgiving. 1 John 4, 9 says, again, we love because he first loved us. He is always the subject and always the instigator of our faith. All right, now we're going to move to this third section, the third R word. I, you know, by the way, I made them all R words, and you're welcome, you know, you're welcome. Um, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells in body, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Then we're going to skip from verse 9 down to verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. This is a sense that God is so powerful that there is a, there's no one else upon which to rely that could even um, compare. I was in a study once, and they had us write down on a piece of paper, an 8 by 10 piece of paper, you know, the greatest and the worst people of mankind. You know, you're like starting up there with, you know, Mother Teresa, maybe your grandmother, somebody that you really, really admire as being really close to God and close to his way. And at the bottom, of course, is somebody like who? Didn't have to say it, did I? We all had him at the bottom of the list. Okay, and they said, yes. And then when you put that up next to the, let's say, um, John Hancock Building or whatever it's called these days, or the Sears Tower, that's God. And the difference between the best and the worst of us is something like 10 inches. There's no comparison. He is so much greater than our greatest selves. So we are so glad to dwell in him bodily. It was important, as Sherry told us last week, that we understand the body was part of God's plan. When he sent himself to earth, it was in bodily form so that we could understand that our bodies could be transformed by him as well. He is not just spirit. He is not just deity. He is deity dwelling in bodily form. And he puts everything else to shame. I want to talk about the icky part, circumcision here, because there's a lot about it. There's a lot about circumcision in the middle of this, and um, of course all of us know what that means, but I want to go back into where it originated um, with the Abrahamic covenant. So this is an excerpt here. God said to Abraham, 
This is from Genesis 17. Um, Every male throughout your generations, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money, shall surely be circumcised. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So we have a cutting off to represent not being cut off. And I think it's interesting that this is the body part that was chosen. Have you ever thought... Not about that? You know, why not a tattoo? I'm just saying, you know. Um, why? Well, I, I think the word generation has something to do with that. We are actually talking about a reproductive organ that is marked by a covenant relationship with God. Now, this is just me talking. I did not look this up. But I'm like, you know, I've often wondered, why that? Why that? So we have a covenant that comes through blood. It's very specific on the eighth day. Anybody that's in your house that's your child, that is a covenant by inheritance, has to still be marked that way, all the males, of course. And then if you have a male, or a male servant or a slave or a convert, they too must go through this procedure to be counted in those uh, uh, with whom God has made a covenant promise. That's why it's still in people's minds as we're converting folks to, a following, to following Jesus, you know, from, from being pagans or, or from the Jewish faith, that we understand that they would have a really strong feeling about circumcision that we might not have if we had not been taught for generations that this is what sets you apart. It's very important. So the question is, does everybody have to be circumcised to come to Christ, was on people's minds. Paul's too. Even though he preaches later, that's not true. One of his followers, who's a Greek, actually goes through the process in order that no one will stumble over that process for him. Now, why they would know that, I do not know, but we're not. But the new covenant in him, capital H, Jesus, is the putting off, there's the word again, of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, clearly, this is not literal. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful workings of God, who raised him from the dead, nailing sins to the cross. This is excerpted. You could read it in its full form. But we see here there's a, there's a, a, a compare and contrast between circumcision of the body and circumcision of the spirit, which we're calling baptism here, both outward symbols of an inward covenant. And when we put off our flesh in the form of baptism it's not that we have ceased to be human because we already understand god likes the body he made himself in bodily form it's not that we cease to have any our body ceases to have any value but it is now buried with christ and risen with christ in bodily form we are still in, our bodies are still important the gnostics said maybe it's not important only your spirit's important in fact you can do anything you want with your body because the only thing that matters is your spirit which is not true Jesus tells us, body matters, but we can, by an act of obedience and identification, identify with the death and resurrection of our body in a new form. We are transformed by the renewing of our mind, and we are indicating that by the baptism of our body. So that is why those two things are placed in that one section of this text together, and maybe a little clarity on circumcision at all for you. It helped me to study this a bit. There's much more to be learned about that. Okay. Now we're going to move on to section four, repel. Um, Colossians 2.8, and then skipping down to verses 16 through 23, 
tells us to repel some of the things that are, are uh, in our atmosphere. The same way um, drowning fishermen have to repel sharks. Their hands were all beat up. Can you imagine? The shark-infested waters repelling those, those sharks until they were rescued. So I'll go ahead and read this section for you. Do I have it down in my thing or do I need to go back? Yeah, I need to go back to here. Okay. Um, I love this part. So in, in first we're going to go to verse 8 and we're going to skip over. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And there we hear it again. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels and going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. There's the body references again, clearly important. So I saw this as let no one, let no one, let no one. These are the sharks in the water. We already know, we are reminded that we are in Christ and that he is our rescuer. And he rescued us in order that we, have, we can work out our faith with um, thanksgiving. But we are still in a place where it's easy to convince us otherwise. And I'm going to suggest to you something that I've come to understand about the grace of God. It makes no worldly sense. It doesn't match anything else about how we live. How we live in the world is if I go to work, I get paid. If I study to, for the test, I get an advanced grade. If I do this, my children will do that. And you know how fail-safe that is. But anyway, we set it in our mind that there's an if-I-then, right? But this is the crazy thing about the gospel. It's because he, I. It doesn't have any, really anything to do with us. So it would be easy for us to think, well, I need to pray this way or have my quiet time every day or read this many scriptures or read the Bible through in a year or go to this many Bible studies or know this much more so that he. It's a wrong equation. The equation is, he loves me so much that I go to some Bible studies. I have a quiet time with him in the morning. I'm telling other people about him. I love to listen to worship music because he, I. But the world will twist that just a little bit, and I will say, it's not just the world. It's the person I see in my mirror who every day says to me, what do you need to do? What do you need to do? And Jesus told us before, the work of God is to believe in him. And out of that flows. But here are some of the things that we, he tells us to worry that no one takes us captive by, okay? Philosophy, empty deceit, human tradition, and the elemental spirits of this world. We do not have to go back in historical biblical time to wonder if philosophies don't take us off track. You just have to turn on the news or read any popular book or think about your political leanings because there are philosophies everywhere that will take us into if I, then the world, or the world should if I. And there are lots of philosophies. Some of them I wrote down on your sheet. You can look at those. But philosophy means love of wisdom. And I'm going to tell you, right within the world, word's definition is an idol. It's not love of God. It's love of wisdom. You know, when um, Paul writes, I think it's Paul writes, to most excellent Theophilus, do you remember his most excellent Theophilus <clears throat> in some of his books? Theophilus means God lover. 
you know, I should have named my child Theophilus. I'm sure he would have appreciated it. Theophilus Pasilio goes, you know, I got a ring to it. Um, nobody calls their child philosophy, at least not yet. <laughs> I don't know, maybe that's going to come up. But love of wisdom, it's the systemized study of a general and fundamental question, such as those about existence, reason, knowledge, values, mind, and language. Such questions are often posed as a problem to be studied and resolved. So basic questions of philosophy are, why am I here? Why do I exist? How did the world come to be? What is my life for? These are philosophical questions about the human condition. They are not questions about the God condition. They are questions about the human condition. And so philosophies that make us feel better, and there are a lot of them, can take us right off course because they're not of him necessarily. Empty deceit, there are empty deceit. There are things that we can clearly see are deceitful. But rarely are the deceits completely void of some truth. I only wish the mustache and the cape came in, and then I would go, that there is evil. That red tail and those horns, that's deceit. Unfortunately, it comes wrapped in packages we can hardly discern. Satanism, of course, is easy to discern, but things like tribalism, when we say, because we're here, that must be wrong, or because we're right, that must be wrong. These things can be empty deceit as well. They can be very um, fragile premises upon which to sand. And then human tradition, Sherry taught us about this, things like what we do all the time in order to be right with God, which is good if it comes as a result of our receiving, not as a way to receive. But human tradition can take us over. We're about to head into December, and we will see everywhere Jesus is the reason for the... Because we need to remind ourselves. Because there's a lot of traditions, like you know, how much ham do I buy, and how many presents do each of the kids have, and is my budget going to last, and how many trips to grandmother's house can I make in the course of two full days, you know. These traditions can completely um, usurp our attention. So we just want to make sure that we aren't necessarily just shaking our fingers at other people about their traditions. I had the opportunity this week to go to a wedding in a tradition that's different than the one I'm now worshiping in, and with my <clears throat> fresh eyes, I was like, What's that about, and what's that, and what does that represent? And these are things that were so common that when I asked my mother-in-law about it, she said, I don't know. And I thought, it's right there in the front. How do you not... Uh, oh. <laughs> I was very excited. Um, how, do you, how has it not come to your mind? Well, because it's tradition. We, that's, you know, it's the thing we swim in, and we talk about Christianese and the way we talk and the language we use in the world. Sometimes it sounds bizarre to people, but we don't know because it's where we are swimming. And some of that... Some of that is, was common, yes, as Sherry taught us with the Judaizers who were saying you must maybe be circumcised before you come to Christ or you must do these Sabbath rituals before you, you know, you're right with God. We know it's the same, but it, it happens now too and it happens with ourselves. And then elemental spirits of this world. How many times have you heard recently, the universe wants me to, right? What is the universe? The, the planets? The astronomy? Or are we talking about astrology? Are we talking about the spirit of the plant? I went to um, Hawaii, and there was an erupting volcano, and um, the indigenous people were praying to the god of the volcano. I went to Bali, um, and there were so many... 
there were so many gods to be appeased every day that I didn't get a cup of coffee till 10 o'clock because they had to feed the gods, they had to give coffee to the ancestors, they had to put flowers on every doorstep. I mean, the coffee. No, really, you know, this is a hardship for me. I'm just saying, that was the thing. I was like, wow, you're so busy appeasing the gods and also appeasing the demons because there was like blue um, wolves in front of doors. And I was like, now, are What's this? I asked so many questions, I annoyed everybody. What, what are these? Are these gods? Oh, no, those are the demons. That's why we have to feed them, to keep them at bay. They guard our doors as long as we feed. I mean, my goodness. Now, I wish we could just say it's just what they do, but there are things that we do as well, you know, giving some um, cred uh, credibility to the spirits of things. So um, native religions, Wiccan, that say the spirit of the trees, the spirit of the air, the spirit of the volcano, these are not outside of our waters. We know that these exist. And what we want to say is, don't, take, don't be taken captive. You see that? They, can, they, could, they could come along and, and, and pull you out of the water and take you somewhere you don't intend to go. Don't be taken captive by those, even if they're very interesting. Like if they were on Oprah, or somebody made a, you know, a what, what do we call it, a vision board for it. That's the captive. I can manifest it as long as I can envision it. I don't know what God that is, but I don't see him here. Then the next section, let no one pass judgment. Now, this is the judgment part. So before it was being taken captive, and now we're passing judgment in regard to food and drink, festival days, and the Sabbath. Now, I put some scriptures up here, which I believe are on your paper as well, because in regard to food and drink, Jesus tells us, don't make food and drink so important that other people can't see the love you have for me and the love I have for you. In other words, your rituals that are meant to demonstrate obedience or maybe loyalty to me can become a stumbling block if you don't love your neighbor as yourself. So restricting yourself for the sake of fasting and prayer, you should do it where nobody's looking. You shouldn't stand out on the street corner and do it. Jesus says, if you do this, do this for the sake of me, not for the sake of some religious piety that you want to demonstrate. Festival days. Let us keep the festival not with the old bread of leavened malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Please don't put on your Facebook like a shaking finger, keep Jesus and Christmas, because that's malice and wickedness. We just had an argument over a day off school last week, Columbus Day, Indigenous Peoples Day. That's a festival. What's that about? Who says we should do it? Lots of argument, and it's all with malice and wickedness. None of it glorified God, and it wasn't meant to. It was meant to glorify different kinds of people and their ideology. So no wonder there's going to be argument about it. Jesus did not say festivals are bad. In fact, he was celebrating the festivals. He was going on the eighth day to be circumcised. He was going to the festival of the tabernacles when um, his, then he got lost from his parents. He was celebrating the Sabbath as a regular occurrence, but he understood that the festival itself is not more important than the God it celebrates right? Okay, and now the Sabbath, to go straight to the Sabbath. Of course, Jesus got a lot of criticism, and so did his disciples, for doing things on the Sabbath, which were meant to be days of stillness and of rest. And you had to work like a dog, like Martha, on the day before, so that you could be like Mary on the day of. And as long as you were like Martha on the day before and Mary on the day of, that was supposed to be good, but Jesus said to Mary, Martha, Mary's chosen the better way because whatever it is she's doing, it feels a lot more about me than what you're doing. So here it is. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. 
So the Son of Man is even Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, when you're criticizing Jesus for doing things on the day he instituted in order that we would worship his Father, but you are making it such a big deal that the idea of worshiping is more important than the worship, you've got it wrong. The Sabbath was made so that men would have a, a ladder, a way, a practice, an, a, a, you know, a, an obedience to a system that was meant to worship God. But we can get it out of order. He was referring here to the time when um, the showbread was given to folks who needed it on the Sabbath. But anyway, or eating, eating um, heads of wheat as he was walking through. They were criticizing for eating and picking and harvesting on the Sabbath. But he says, Sabbath is made for men, not men for the Sabbath. So anyway, so there, these are a shadow of things to come, which I love, but the substance belongs to Christ. In other words, they're kind of like that. They're, they demonstrate what I'm like, but they aren't what I am. So I was playing shadow with my grandchildren this weekend, and I was pretending to jump on her shadow, and she was pretending to stomp on my shadow, but neither of us got hurt. It's not real. It's just a shadow. It's a picture but it isn't the real thing. And that's what Jesus was telling us. And then here's the last one. Let no one disqualify you. Now, this is interesting. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, worship of angels, and, visual, and visions. Okay, so this means you have changed your, your focus from God and the things of God to another God. This is a disqualification. You start worshiping another God, you are not worshiping the God of I am. So he's asceticism, the focus is on you. That means I'm, I'm depriving myself physically, I'm, I'm, I'm receiving lashings, I'm living in a very harsh way, I'm kneeling on, you know, bricks, I'm whipping myself with a, a, in order that I look pious or seem pious to others. And the object of that work is often ourselves. We want to look holy. So once we've taken our eyes off God and put them back on ourselves, we are again worshiping an idol, which is not God. Worship of angels, that goes without saying. I told my group last week that when I was a young Christian, there was some kind of a book out about angels, an angel that came to, I think, a sick person and you know, spoke of Jesus. And I went to the Christian bookstore to find that book. And they said, now we are not going to sell a book where the subject is the angel rather than the one who made angels. And it was just close enough, you see? So if I change my focus from Jesus to things that Jesus created, whether it's an angel or a human being or anything in this world, I have taken on an idol. Last thing, visions. I, you know, if somebody says, God told me, you know, it has a lot of weight, right? And if we say, did you hear from God? Did he tell you? And we depend on some sort of revelation for ourselves every time we may be taking our eyes again off God himself and onto our experience of him it can be very satisfying but it may be just emotional so he says don't be disqualified by worshiping any of these idols these have an appearance of wisdom excuse me but they are of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh in other words your body's still going to go on sinning because your mind's in the wrong place we don't have the mind-body connection at that point all right so this is the uh, group activity part Okay, we are going to recite um, some scriptures to each other. But first of all, I want to ask you, have you seen the movie Invictus? It's about uh, the South, Amer South African soccer team. 
think Morgan Freeman was in there. And there's a, there's a poem by that same name written by William Ernest Henley. I want you to listen to this because we are trying to repel things that sound good, and a poem often sounds good. In fact, it was the theme of this movie, and um, Nelson Mandela recited this. But I want you to listen for any sharks in the water while I recite it. Are you ready? Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstances, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Do you hear the heresies in there? What do you think the captain flailing around in the shark-infested waters would say about this poem? Would he say, I am the master of my fate? I am unafraid? I am unbowed? There are other gods? Just saying. All right, now we're gonna, I'm going to split you kind of down the middle. This middle table, you can decide what you want to do. You can go on the right side or the left side, or as you're looking at me, the right side and the left side. So I'm going to have this group go first, and I've got three scriptures on your page. And I want this group to recite to that group. So you guys are in the listening and receiving mode while you guys are in the sending mode. You're going to send some reminders that Paul gives us in the book of 2 Corinthians verse 10 and 5. So are you ready over here on this side? And you can split your table down the middle and you can yell at each other. I don't care. That's fine. All right, so I'm going to start, but you're going to follow along. So it's on your page. You don't have to look at me. We all have the same version. This is the ESV version. Ready? We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Now I want you to say it like you mean it and to them again. Ready? You've gotten to run through it once. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. This is our active part. Okay, now you're going to preach to this side of the room. You ready? Do you want to read it through one time? Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you will be able to test and approve of what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Are you ready? Are you ready? This side? Okay, here we go. One, two, three. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. That's from Romans 12 too. Now we're going to do all of this together since you're both a lot more encouraged from each other. We're going to encourage one another again and you're going to fill in the blanks, which I didn't leave blank so you can get it right, okay? I gave you the answers. All right, I'll read the parts that are not underlined and you will shout at me the parts that are underlined. Are you ready? One, two, three. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is Whatever is, whatever is, whatever is, whatever is, whatever is, if anything is, or think about such things, 
Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. And all God's girls are going to finish that as a prayer. Amen. All right. Good job. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.